0: Well, good morning. It is really great to be back from uh, a week of vacation. I was gone the last two Sundays, and I'm grateful for that time off before the the frenzy of the fall begins, right? And um, we had a great time down in the Smoky Mountains. Every year we make it a little ritual, our family, to go to Dollywood. It's a whole lot cheaper than Disney World. And uh, if you've never been, I highly recommend it. But this isn't a sermon about Dollywood. Um, but, but, but on vacation, walking through the theme park in the water park um, for multiple days with our three little kids, Brianna and Noah especially, I became, I became hyper aware of the fact that they are always listening and observing their mom and dad. Kids are like sponges, aren't they? Brianna and Noah right now, especially nine and five years old, Everything we say and how we react to stressful situations, they absorb. They're they're observing what gets us stressed, what gets mom flustered, or what makes dad upset. Does dad like to wait in line for the ride for the 15th time or not? They, They pick all of that up. And walking through the theme park, there were a few moments where later in the day, they would sort of say something that didn't really sound like Noah or Brianna. It actually sounded a whole lot like Lorne. And in those moments as a parent, you sort of, um, you're sort of startled into the reminder that what I say and how I act and react matters. My, my kids are, are picking up this ethic by which I live my life this ethic by which um, I orient um, how I think about the world. And walking through the theme park, uh, I started to think about my own childhood and some of those lessons that I I learned from my mom and dad, the things that I absorbed about how they were in the world. And I thought very fondly, um, I started to laugh thinking about a memory. I think I was around seven or eight years old and I heard a knock at the door one Saturday morning. My sister and I weren't used to getting knocks at the door on a Saturday morning, so we sort of peeked out the window and I yelled for my mom, it's Marguerite. Now Ralph and Marguerite lived, lived right across the street and they were well into their late 80s. Ralph was at this point into his 90s. They had lived in the same home for over 60 years and they were a beautiful couple. Ralph was sort of a gruff guy, but a very loving man. And every day at four o'clock, like clockwork, the garage door would come up, and out would come Ralph, and he would open up his folding chair, and he would sit it out there. Marguerite would come and bring him a martini, and then Ralph would light up a big, fat cigar. Every day. And he was well into his 90s, so I grew up thinking, you can just smoke cigars and live forever. We know know that's not true, right? Marguerite, on the other hand, was this petite, dainty, little, sweet woman who wore white cardigans and khakis with pleats in them and, and little nice shoes. And she was so loving. She was like a grandma across the street. And on this particular Saturday, there's Marguerite at the door, unannounced, with a warm apple pie. The most beautiful apple pie. And I remember my mom said, why did you do this, Marguerite? Well, just because, Susie. I thought you and your kids and Rob would enjoy a pie. No reason at all. Well, thank you, thank you. How sweet of you, Marguerite. Totally in her character to do this, right? So my mom brings the pie into the kitchen, and my sister and I are scurrying around, excited that we're going to get a slice of apple pie but I notice my mom standing there over the pie in the kitchen, and she lets out this, "Ah." and I hear her say, now I've got to make margarita pie sometime. Can anyone relate to that? This is sort of how my mom um, operated, and I picked it up from a very early age. One of my best friends, Eric, His mom, Chris, and my mom shared the same birthday, October 8th. And I remember one year in particular, Chris knocked on our door, surprising my mom on their shared birthday and said, Hey, Susie, happy birthday. Oh, we're birthday gals. Here, I got you a gift. And my mom said, You didn't have to do that. We didn't talk about doing that. Why did you do that? She brought the gift inside. (laughs) She's staring at it at the kitchen table and says, now I got to run out and buy Chris a birthday gift. <laughs> so often in life, we, we score keep like this, don't we? And, and there's, it comes from an honorable place, right? But, but I've grown to realize that in life, it is more than enough to just send a thank you card for the beautiful gift of the apple pie. You don't have to then make somebody an apple pie. But so often we we live our life that way. We score keep in these simple ways, but we also score keep in ways that, that aren't so helpful, that actually become toxic. If we can score keep around nice, kind gestures, we certainly keep score when it comes to how people wrong us, offend us, upset us. Well, you did this five years ago, and I haven't forgotten about it. So until you do this, we're not equal. We're constantly tallying scores. It's the way of the world. And today in John chapter 14, there's a form of scorekeeping that is happening. Now in the first century, in, in the time in which Jesus did ministry, he did so through a culture that was based off of honor and shame. The goal was to grow your honor and to not be shamed Because if you brought shame upon yourself, you brought shame upon your entire family. And just as it's true today that in society there are certain ranks or classes of people there are the wealthy and the educated, there are those that are in power or are popular, and there are those that are sort of at the bottom rung of society. It was even more so in the time in which Jesus did ministry, there was a true class system. And the way you climbed the ladder was by scorekeeping and gaining honor for yourself. And one of the ways that you could grow your honor and the honor of your family was through invitations to dinner parties. To be seen dining with somebody of more importance than you would grow your honor. You wanted to be at the sort of meals that Jesus had been invited to. This is the third time in John's gospel that Jesus is having a meal with the Pharisees. And this time, it's with the leader of the group. We're led to believe that there are important people present. And we're told in verse 1 that as Jesus came into the setting, they're watching him closely. They're picking up the, the cues with which Uh, Jesus operates. Will he do something like heal on the Sabbath again, which we deem as inappropriate? Will will he come out of this setting with more honor or with shame? But Jesus is also watching them. He's watching how the people are jockeying for the best seat at the table. He's, He's watching as people are consumed with keeping score, always looking to where somebody else might be in the room. And Jesus, he honestly wants nothing to do with this. This is certainly not the ethic by which Jesus did ministry or taught or lived his own life, climbing social ladders. He, he didn't care about that. His reputation all throughout the Gospels is, is one where he was known to, to eat with the unlikely, the tax collector, the sinner, the, the, drunk, the, the drunks and the gluttons. He, he was known to eat too much and to party too much. This was his reputation. He, he certainly wasn't concerned with dining with the right people. And so Jesus offers two, piece, two pieces of wisdom. First, he turns to them and, and he gives them a little lesson on humility. It sounds just like polite table manners, but but I think Jesus is trying to remind those gathered that it's better to adopt a position of humility. So don't don't vie for the best seat. Take the lowest seat. But then he takes it one step further. And he says to the host, you know, actually, why don't we dismantle the whole honor-shame system in the first place? Because you see, you've invited all of your friends here You've invited your rich neighbors. You've invited those who you hope will then invite you so that you can all grow your honor and be more and more important. When you throw a party, why don't you invite those who cannot repay you? The poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind. Those you pass by on the street every day because don't you see that the kingdom of God is a feast of rich food for all people? You see, Jesus came to teach and to live his life in such a way that others would catch wind that the story that the world keeps telling of scorekeeping and ladder climbing is not the story that God is consumed with. God is consumed with the story where all people are equal and treated with dignity and respect, where all have a seat at the table, not because they've earned the seat but because it's been given to them freely. Now we don't know in Luke 14 exactly how the Pharisees and, and those invited reacted to this teaching, but could you imagine it? Could you imagine how some of those gathered would have reacted to what he was actually proposing? Because it's scandalous. What he's saying to the host is why don't you Invite somebody who has no opportunity or way of increasing your honor. Now some of those others gathered there very well could have responded with, but if you do that, if you invite those people who have done nothing to build their own honor, they haven't been growing it generation after generation, they haven't invited anyone to a party, they haven't earned the seat at this table, if you invite them, what does that mean about my seat at the table? It's just not fair, is it? But this is the scandal of grace. You see, sometimes grace comforts us. It usually comforts us when we know that we are wrong. We know we need forgiveness. We have done something to harm or injure another person or ourselves, And in those moments, grace is sweet, isn't it? The word of forgiveness is something that we hold on to, but But oftentimes, when we're not in touch with our own brokenness and our own need for grace, the message of grace actually, actually makes us angry. And if we need any proof for that, just tune into the conversation happening right now in society about student loan forgiveness Now, this is not a sermon about student loan forgiveness as a policy or adding to the national debt or anything like that. But I have found it very interesting this week how many people are commenting and chirping about how angry they are at this generation of people receiving something that they didn't earn or deserve or merit for free. Can we just remember that the whole construct of Christianity is based upon the idea that there is a debt you cannot pay that has been forgiven for you. Can you imagine the world's story and ethic? Can you imagine the world's story and ethic? If all of the examples of of Christ's teaching went the way that the world score keeps, the feeding of the 5,000. Well, there's 5,000 that brought no lunch, don't deserve a lunch. That poor boy who had two loaves and five, five loaves and two fish, he's the only one that deserved to eat. The story would have went very differently, right? Story after story in the Gospels. John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, they drank all the wine. They don't deserve better wine. But you see, Jesus comes with a radical, scandalous message of Grace. And what is grace? It's unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor and forgiveness. When I first heard about the student loan stuff, I didn't know how I felt, honestly. My first reaction was, I joined the army and fought in a war to go to college. (laughs) What? Who else is going to pay the debt? Is it just going to add up to the national debt? It's not the same. I get it, right? I get it, guys. Don't send me emails. What, but what I find really interesting is how grace can upset us. And it should. Because it's not logical, is it? There's a value of hard work and, 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 and earning what, what, what you have in life. There, there's a value in that. But our whole faith is built upon forgiveness. Our whole faith is built upon the premise that Christ has made us whole. Not through anything we could have done to have earned it, but because it's a gift. You see, in the first half of life, I believe that with my children, my young children, the primary thing Becca and I are trying to teach them is that it's better to give than receive, right? Right? Because a five-year-old, by nature, is a narcissist. If I bring home a box of of gummies that have 40 in the box, 40 pouches of gummies, my five-year-old wants 39 of the 40. We are hardwired from a young age to take, to want. And so we want to teach our children it's better to give than receive. But I have come to learn, I am learning, that in the second half of life, Our spiritual growth happens when we actually learn to receive. We have to learn to receive. To receive something that we don't earn or deserve. When I see people age in the congregation, one of the struggles that they have the most is actually learning to receive the care and support and love of their family. They struggle with it. I should be able to do this. I ought to be able to still be independent. Their spiritual growth is learning to receive. And why is learning to receive important? Because the very nature of our God is that of giver. If we don't learn to receive something we don't earn, we never learn the fullness of what it means to be in relationship with God the Father. Because God is a giver. God is a giver. So grace can comfort, grace can anger, but most of all, my prayer is that grace would motivate. It would motivate us to be more gracious, to not judge so quickly, and to live in love like Jesus, full of the ethic of sharing that grace with the world. This is our Connect weekend, and right after service, we're gonna go out into the gathering space and look at all of the ways that you can connect in your faith this year. Now, sometimes when we do these ministry fairs and connect weekends, we give off, I think, unintentionally the wrong message. And sometimes the message we give off is, we really need you to to do the work of ministry, and and that's true. But we can sometimes give off the message that if you do this, you're gonna kind of earn a point in the church system, right? The more committees you're on, the more points you get. Ruth, you're... Your crown is full of heavenly jewels because you've done it all, right? We don't connect in these ministries or serve or give our life to to something here to to score keep and to do the right thing. We do it because we want to give our life to the church whose message is grace. All of these areas that you can connect in your faith. That you can serve this year are a part of a bigger story that is being told in this community and in this city. Which is while the world may be full of scorekeeping, here it is different. Here we live our lives based off the ethic of love, of grace, of peace. And so as we give ourselves to these ministries this year, my prayer is that no matter where you get connected, whether it's Stephen Ministry, sitting across from somebody, listening to their pain, or it's baking bread, or helping with the altar care, or the property team, that as we do this work together, we do it knowing that it's, it's actually telling a bigger story. That love and life win. That grace is the ultimate truth by which we live our lives. So may you get connected, not just to a ministry, but may you get connected to the scandalous, radical, unending love that God has for you. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Prince of Peace podcast. I hope that today's message has brought comfort and inspiration to your life. Have a great rest of the week.